Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is our daily journey through God's Word, one question at the heart at a time, and that's certainly where you come in. It's your questions that drive and direct our conversation each and every day. We don't sit down and try to figure out exactly what we think you need to hear about on this broadcast. Uh, We would like to be able to answer the questions that are nearest and dearest to your heart, whether it's a question on a particular passage of the Bible you'd like to dig a little bit more deeply into. Maybe it's one of your favorite passages, and and you just like to get to know it a little bit better. Uh, We'd love for you to bring those up for us. In fact, it's our vision here at A Reason for Hope to go through the entire Word of God, one question of the heart at a time. So help us on the journey, direct the conversation. Anywhere in the Bible you want to go, we'd love to go there with you. Uh, Maybe you'd like to learn how to apply God's Word to the challenges you're facing in life. Well, let us know what's going on with you, and uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised how uh, the uh, word can be just a beautiful lamp under your feet and light under your path, uh, no matter what you're going through in this life. Uh, let us know what's going on, and uh, we'll let you know what the word has to say about that. Maybe you've been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ, uh, the reliability of the Bible, why you believe Jesus is the only way to God, and you felt maybe a day late and a dollar short as far as giving. an effective answer. Bring those kind of questions on. Maybe you're on the outside looking in at a relationship with God, and you've got some real questions about the Christian faith. Hey, bring them on. Uh, Our only standard for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to provide it. Joined here, as always, by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if, again, you'd like to join us online, we have an email address where you can send us your questions. That is questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions are plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. If you need clarification on spelling in a visual format, we have three pages we are live streaming from. YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, if you want to make sure that if we're taken down for whatever reason, we don't withhold truth, even when it's uncomfortable socially, we will still be streaming and would prefer that you engage with us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to a live streaming page where from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, we will, of course, be able to receive your questions on the right-hand side of the screen or by email at the bottom of the screen. We'll have our email address spelled out for you. If you're listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, note that we appreciate your support since the uh, foundings of this broadcast and the original format by which we present it. But note that you are still, of course, able to join us on the broadcast, listening in advance. We are tape delayed, but of course, you send us your questions, we will answer them. And also note, if you leave us a question but time eludes us, you can still email us your questions afterwards, and that way we will be able to revisit them as we intend to on the broadcast today with a question we received on Wednesday. So without further ado, and of course, making
making sure that we don't go into this without the reason by which we are doing it to begin with. Let's uh, first take a moment to pray, make sure that God speaks more than we do, and we'll see where he takes us. Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you and and to hear your voice, and that's what we desire, Lord. Uh, We don't want to offer our takes on uh, what's going on today. We want to see what your word has to say and have that be our foundation, Lord, a foundation that won't fail us even when the storms come and the rains rise and and beat against the house uh, that we're building. We can stand even in the most difficult times if we have our foundation in your truth. So guide us into truth, lead us into truth. We pray, Father, that you would have very special uh, points of application. You would speak deeply to the hearts of all those who are taking the time to be with us live here today. And thank you, Lord, for those even all around the world that join us uh, each and every day for this broadcast. Continue to bless them, especially those uh, that are on the front lines and uh, maybe even in uh, countries where being uh, Christian and sharing the gospel is against the law. We pray for their protection. We pray for your mercy and your love to surround them, and we thank you and consider it such a privilege we can encourage our brothers and sisters in uh, the spiritual battles they're facing uh, that are sometimes quite literal in the way they work out in their lives. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, again, as advertised, there was a question sent along to us on Wednesday. We were able to respond to it in text, but not by voice, and with the advent of certain movies that are certainly a advertising this as the new norm. We want to make sure that we're consistent in our biblical worldview, and that is a sound one. Um, The question was sent along to us from Holly, who wants to know, is God against just the homosexual act, or the relationship as a whole? Are there ways in which this sort of relationship can be pursued in a godly way, or is there something a little bit more specific or even broader that God is interested in when he says sexual immorality, specifically, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, the homosexual, the sodomite, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. What is God actually against when it comes to, as the world defines it, LGBT values? You know, uh, one of the saddest things I think that comes up in this conversation conversation is that the issue usually gets framed in terms of what God is against as far as sexuality is concerned, rather than kind of going back to asking an even more important question, what is God for in terms of our sexuality? When we begin to understand that sexuality, uh, the experience of that kind of intimacy, is one of the first and most uh, priceless gifts that God has given to us as people, goes all the way back uh, to the book of uh, Genesis and the Garden of Eden. That's where that relationship started. Uh, And we begin to see that God is an anti-sex. If you've ever felt that God was anti-pleasure, in terms of the sexual relationship, you've never read the Song of Solomon. Uh, It is uh, a celebration, if you will, of the virtues and and the blessedness of that kind of uh, experience and that kind of intimacy that God designed for us to enjoy. But here's the operative word. God designed it. He created the sexual relationship with a purpose. He created it to be observed according to certain guidelines. Now, we don't have to guess in terms of what these guidelines are. Uh, In the book of Matthew, chapter 19, Jesus 
in his earthly ministry was confronted uh, by a hot-button issue of uh, their day, and it's, it's a pretty big issue even in Christian circles in our day. Uh, the, the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives of that time, came to him testing him, asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, you got to understand a little bit about what's going on here. This is a classic, uh, I guess we're going to use this in your uh, rhetoric uh, lessons here. Uh, This is a classic uh, example of the technique of divide and conquer, uh, because what these individuals were doing was highlighting a huge divisive issue in the minds and hearts of people uh, in Jesus' day. There were two main schools of thought regarding divorce. One was taught by a rabbi by the name of of Hillel, uh, and uh, Hillel basically looked at a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, and uh, looked at a, a part of that that said that if a man finds uh, marries a woman and finds her displeasing, well, that's what Hillel jumped all over. He said, if you marry somebody, they're not pleasing to you, well, then God says you can write her a bill of divorcement and be done with it. It was, I guess, what we would call the liberal school of divorce because, uh, for instance, uh, rabbis in the Hillel school said that, you know, among other things, if, say, a wife burned a breakfast— then she wasn't dis- she wasn't pleasing, so uh, the guy could divorce her. If the man found a woman that he liked better than his wife, by definition, she wasn't pleasing him. Just write her a bill of divorcement. You're on your way. So there were obviously people that liked that point of view. They didn't really want to follow through on the commitments they made. There was another rabbi by the name of Shammai that said, no, 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 no. In Deuteronomy 25, it says the reason this, this woman was displeasing was because of a, uh, a, uh, a area of uncleanness. Anwar Darbat in Hebrew. Uh, and it implies sexual immorality. And so uh, the followers of Shammai felt that the only reason you could get divorced was if the marriage covenant was broken by the practice of sexuality outside the one man, one woman committed together for life relationship God had designed. So, uh, you know, opinion was evenly divided. And so these guys weren't looking for truth. A lot of times that's one of the things that we have to work our way through on this program. Uh, We emphasize sincere questions because there are people that will ask questions, but they've got a hidden agenda. They've got a motive behind those questions, not to find truth, but to reject truth. They're not listening to the answer. They're waiting for another opportunity to ask a question. They also don't want to, and our limited time has been exhausted. Yeah, gotcha questions, that sort of thing. So this was kind of the classic gotcha question. Uh, And uh, they were probably smiling like the cat that ate the canary when they asked Jesus this, because they said, oh, you know, if he goes with Shammai or Hillel, he's going to lose half his followers. This will be great. We can at least pare down the people that are following following this guy. Well, Jesus, as he always did, takes the issue deeper. Uh, He answered and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, notice what Jesus does here. He takes things back to the garden, if you will. Pardon the Joni Mitchell reference there. He says that at the beginning, God made them male and female. 
Again, the institution of marriage and the practice of our sexuality was to be between the complementary individuals that God created, male and female. It was to be a experience of intimacy that was uh, involved in one man, one woman committed together for life. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So there was a spiritual dynamic to it as well. And so rather than going with Shammai or Hillel, what Jesus did was he went with the Scripture. He just brought it back to the uh, initial uh, purpose of marriage and the practice of our sexuality. So getting to the hot-button question here about LBGTQ issues, and so on. Uh, what is to be the practice of our sexuality? So notice how we're approaching the question. Instead of just getting to the point and risking misunderstanding, we've gone from basically the foundation up. If the question is, what's God's view of sexual ethics? First, what's God's view of sex par blanc? What at the foundation is God's issue? It's not with sexuality. He invented it. But you then include the premise, God invented it with an intention in mind. Just like he's personally involved and has a purpose for our lives in how we're to live our lives, so the things he's introduced into our lives follow that same mindset. There's a way to do it, and there's a not way to do it. And there's a reason for that. You know, I think we would all have to admit that our sexuality is a very powerful but very fragile part of who we are. Uh, when we open ourselves up to that kind of intimacy, uh, it is very difficult to do so uh, without letting someone in on a level that uh, very few people actually have the, the opportunity to experience in life. And because of that, because our sexuality is so powerful and because it is so fragile in a lot of ways, God created this one man, one woman committed together life relationship we call marriage for our sexuality to be practiced. If we take our sexuality and practice it before we make that lifetime commitment in marriage, and and remember something, being able to trust someone is a huge part of intimacy. It's, It's the reason that so many people get involved with hookup culture and things like this, find it so unsatisfying, because you can have the physical experience of sexuality, but there's no trust there. There's no sense that that person's ever really going to be there for you. And so, in order to facilitate that, our sexuality was only to be practiced in this one man, one woman committed together for life uh, institution we call marriage. And so, if I take that outside of marriage, before marriage, the Bible has a word for that. It's called fornication. If I take my sexuality and practice it after I've been married with someone who isn't my wife, uh, for instance, uh, that is called adultery. And the Bible is very, very explicit uh, about the condemnation of those things because it takes something pure, something beautiful, something that is intimate, something that is real and genuine, and it twists it and removes the love from it and replaces love with, I guess, for lack of a better term, lust. My desires as a human being, my drives, uh, what I think might be fulfilling for me mean more to me than caring about that other person. It and expresses. God says that, that that's just absolute poison 
to that kind of intimacy. It's making decisions based off of an absence of what we call the fruits of the Spirit, namely self-control. If it's not in align with God's character, it's not in align with what's good. Yeah. That's understanding our ethic. So having said this, I know some of you are saying, well, you're really kind of uh, dancing around the issue here. What about uh, homosexual relationships? Well, once again, the idea of having a close friend of the same sex is certainly nothing that the Bible speaks against. Uh, David and Jonathan are a great example of two individuals that were uh, buddies for life, I'd say, uh, to use the, uh, the paraphrase. Uh, they were willing to lay down their lives for one another, but it was not a sexual relationship. David even said his relationship with Jonathan was superior to the relationship he had with his wives, not just because he had plural wives and they were bumming him out, but also, and especially... And messed up the picture, but go yeah, ahead. The point of emphasis that he makes in Second Samuel chapter 1, or how the mighty have fallen, was emphasizing that Jonathan's relationship with him brought him closer to his relationship with God as opposed to separating him from it. And this is something that our culture really has a hard time understanding is that you can have a committed relationship with someone without it being sexual, without it having to be expressed in a sexual way. Uh, you know, I think about some of the lifelong friends that I have, uh, people that I've known since I was a teenager. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, I think about a fellow by the name of Keith Mathias, uh, you know, who's just been like a brother to me down through the, down through the years. Uh, but there, the intimacy and the commitment that we have with each other uh, would in no way, shape, or form uh, lead us to a sexual expression of that relationship. But it doesn't mean it's any less satisfying or any less uh, close or any less uh, of an expression of love for one another. Now, here's the deal. If we're going to practice our sexuality, the Bible says that there is one place that God has created us to experience our sexuality, and that is in the one man, one woman, committed together relationship we call marriage. Now, if I remove sexuality from those guidelines that God has created for them, then I am doing something in rebellion against God. Now, I might feel like I'm being altruistic in doing this. I might feel like uh, culture is encouraging me to do this sort of thing. But if uh, we really want to experience our sexuality in the best and fullest and undamaging sense of the term, we will always, always, always do it in harmony with how God designed it to operate. If I, for instance, uh, you know, say, you know, on a uh, cold winter night, if uh, I build a fire in a fireplace and uh, there's three logs there in the fireplace and they're, they're burning brightly and creating a nice sense of warmth, that's a blessing. But if I take one of those logs that's burning brightly and put it on my sofa, I've got a problem. So you the know, illustration uh, Solomon made in Proverbs 6. So we really have to be careful with all of this. Now, some people will say, well, okay, but what if I'm not attracted to members of the opposite sex? What does that mean for me? Well, here's what it means for you. Uh, there is an alternative. You can practice what's called abstinence. You're going to have wholesome, beautiful, encouraging, and supportive relationships with members of the same sex without it having to be a practice of our sexuality. You go, oh, well, that's so restrictive. But you know what? It's a restriction, you know, that 
I put myself under. You know, I'm here to confess to you, I'm a heterosexual. And as a heterosexual, it does appear to me that God has hotwired me to uh, pay some attention, at least to the presence of attractive women. Now, if I were to say to myself, okay, if God wanted me to be monogamous and just be with my wife for the rest of my life, why would he have given me this inclination to do the old double take when I see an attractive woman come into this place? Surely God wouldn't want me to be restricted along these lines. He made me this way. I have to practice my sexuality outside of marriage because God gave me these drives and desires. Well, two things I would say to this. Number one, if I were to say to my wife, uh, Pam, you know, uh, God made me this way, and I'm just not going to be in a monogamous relationship with you anymore, probably be one of the last things I think I would say here on planet Earth. <laughs> she wouldn't appreciate that very much. And even if she did, it wouldn't change Scripture. We'll get to more of that in a second. But second, uh, understand this. If I look at that and and I realize, okay, I have a temptation and inclination to rebel against God's standards, but I'm not an animal just operating on instinct. I'm a human being. I'm made in the image and likeness of God, and God has given me the ability to take my free will and say yes to God's plans and say no to maybe the things that my fallen nature would want to do in rebellion against God. When I say no to those things of this world that charm me most and say yes to something better, that is not only, say, in the practice of sexuality, uh, staying loyal, staying monogamous, staying in a place where uh, faith and trust are, are built in the relationship I have uh, with my wife. I'm going to be blessed by that on the horizontal, but even more... I'm going to be blessed because I'm going to be pleasing God in how I practice my sexuality. So we've got a choice. We can either say, well, I can go with culture, I can go with my own desires, or I can say, you know, I think Jesus probably had something important to say about the practice of my sexuality. We say, well, why should I listen to him? Well, he not only claimed to be God, he proved it by rising from the dead. So if God, who visited us here on earth, has told us how to practice our sexuality, then I think we need to do that. That doesn't mean you can't have satisfying friendships with members of the same sex. You just can't take it a step further and practice your sexuality in a way that God never designed it to function. And uh, I guess to uh, quote Peter Falk here. Um, just one more thing. <laughs> there's been an assumption in all of this. We're speaking to people who share our worldview people who have affirmed the name of Jesus but are in a situation where they have same-sex inclinations. When it comes to the call to abstinence, it's not one that you limit yourself to as a heterosexual or a homosexual. The experience is still that of humanity. We don't make a assumption behind all this. We'll get to that more in a moment. But when we're talking about this issue, the Bible does in fact make a distinction as far as the sort of ethics we have among each other as believers and the sort of ethics those who are in the outside are practicing, and we need to recognize the difference. All you have to keep in mind, Holly, is two chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Five comes before six, which is important, but I'll start with that because it was referenced. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, the conversation is about bringing legal disputes before non-believers as opposed to believers. And he makes a distinction in saying, you should be judging these issues among yourselves. And then notes not an othering, but a distinction between what they are and what the world is. He says in First Corinthians six and verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, again, heterosexual or homosexual, nor idolaters, it doesn't have anything to do with your sexuality, it's just other than God recognition, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now people will go full stop there and say, see, you guys are evil. Well, here's the problem. The church of Corinth, uh, full of Corinthians, and historically, what was the term Corinthian usually describing? It would be like the United States equivalent of, this guy wasn't born in Vegas, he was born on the Strip. Yeah. This guy was crazy. And he says in verse 11 to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice, you weren't justified in your homosexuality any more than you were justified in your stealing or in your idolatry. He's speaking to believers, people who don't make an assumption, I do, therefore I am. People say, well, I'm gay, or I'm lesbian, or I'm trans, or I'm Christian. That's the distinction that we are making here. I believe in Christ, therefore what I once turned to for my identity and for my purpose in life, whether it's my pursuit of pleasure, my pursuit of peace, that's in or outside of sexuality, that's the whole assumption. The world does its own thing. We as Christians need to understand we were those things, but now we're in Christ Jesus. The question then is, what about people who aren't in Christ Jesus? Well, that's why Paul said 1 Corinthians 5 before 1 Corinthians 6. I wrote to you, this is 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, in my epistle, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Once again, people say, full stop. So don't be involved with those rainbow people. No, what does it say? Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. If you're not allowed to be around sinners, there's not a lot of other options, is Paul's point. Right. <laughs> he goes on to say, I have now written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or extortioner, or a viler, or drunkard, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Now people say, see, you Christians shouldn't judge. Again, keep reading. Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. And then quotes the Old Testament, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's right. Deuteronomy 17. But the point being made is this. When we see someone living the way the world does, what feels right to me, what seems right to me, my community, my passions, my whatevers, my identity, they shouldn't be expected to do or be anything less than what they are and what we would be apart from Jesus. We need to have that grace. And at the same time, we need to note the distinction, not the inferiority-superiority dichotomy, but the fact this person isn't under my judgment. You're not being held to responsibility before Jesus. You're being held responsibility as to what? Your ultimate destination before God. Right. You are, at this moment, 
apart from Jesus, and I want to get you the gospel. Because if someone becomes straight, that doesn't mean they're saved. No. If, on the other hand, someone is straight and very wanton in that, the Bible has just as many words, in fact, four more of them than they would for a homosexual. So the point being, excuse me, made is this. If we're talking to someone who doesn't share our values, we should first make sure they share our values. That's clear. That's a good idea. On the other hand, someone who does claim to share our values but doesn't live according to them, they should be held to that. But until they name the name of Jesus, we shouldn't expect anything less for them, nor ask anything of them apart from, what do you think of Jesus of Nazareth? That's the whole goal of the Christian life. We're not here to restore us back to good old-fashioned American values. We're here to bring people into the love and admiration of Jesus Christ. As far as sexuality is concerned, that's one symptom among many of the things this right. world turns to apart from him. Right. And things, by the way, fellow Christians, we're still struggling with. Make sure that you're willing to express the same kind of grace you would want to receive if you were struggling. That's another point, speaking both in and outside of this issue. Yeah. But the point being made in making this a roundabout issue is note where we started. God's not against the idea of sex. God's not against the idea of our sexuality. He has a purpose in mind for our sexuality. Anything other than that purpose is one of many ways that we rebel against him. The only way our rebellion against him is fixed is because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The moment someone comes to align with that, they should be expected to live according to it, not to co-opt his words in light with their sensibilities or to justify their behavior. And uh, we'll have a follow-up on this in a moment, but we want to give priority to your questions as well. The point being made, though, to Holly's question is, the reason God is against anything is because it's in direct contradiction to his nature, the definition of goodness. When God had a purpose in mind for something, other than that, will by definition harm us in the same way that me using this phone for anything other than, well, I couldn't name all the things this phone does in the, in the half hour we still have, but the things it was built to do will then damage it. It's not a hammer if you catch my drift. So the point being made is this. God doesn't want you to hurt your fellowship with him. God doesn't want you to deviate in your nature from him. And God doesn't want you to use the things he intended to bless you to harm you, which this world has literally made into a sport, whether it's in or outside of our sexuality. If someone is not of Jesus, they're by definition of the world and need Jesus. Once that's figured out, then make sure they're living according to what they claim but make sure that you don't get the cart before the horse, as the old illustration goes. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, question from S.A. who wants to know, is there any biblical example of God going quiet in the life of a believer to draw them closer to him? I'd have to make an assumption, and this would be a controversial one, but I think an example, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, we have instructions of God handing people over to their sins so their flesh might be saved, but an example of that in the Old Testament I think would be Saul. Yeah, King Saul, the first yeah. king of Israel. As yeah. far as him being cut off from communication with God at the end of First Samuel, he specifically notes to Samuel, I won't tell you the circumstances by which he was talking to him, but he said, God isn't speaking to me anymore. And Samuel's reply was, you know, why do you think that is? But the point being made was God withheld information from him, not because he had committed the sin that cannot be forgiven from. I have no doubt that Saul still had a relationship with God. Otherwise, if I'm going to be consistent, opinion, opinion, I would also have to condemn David as not being saved. But that being said, 
when we're talking about God distancing himself from one or cutting off fellowship in any way. You say going quiet, it can be the removal of certain protections, certain blessings, all those sort of things. It is to draw them closer to him. And another example of that would be Job. It wasn't because of any sin that he committed, but the going quiet, the allowing of certain trials in yeah. his life was also with the intention of drawing closer to him. So, essay uh, to answer your question in the immediate, like, judgment sense, yes, I think there are examples, but it's controversial. But what isn't controversial is, I think every example of what God's doing in our life is to draw us closer to fellowship with him, whether it's going quiet or even, dare I say, getting louder. Yeah, uh, you know, a, a couple things about that. You know, when we go through, I sometimes they're called a dry time, uh, a, a time where, uh, you know, we're just not uh, feeling as close to God as we used to. We don't feel like he's speaking to us in the word. You know, we don't uh, have that sense of his nearness uh, and his presence. You know, there's a number of different things that uh, can happen. I think wisdom uh, is to say, okay, God is always working. God always is about the business of working for our benefit and for our blessing. Uh, when I'm going through a time like this, why am I going through uh, a time like this? Sometimes we will have no idea exactly what God is accomplishing by uh, one of those times where we don't sense his nearness and his presence. It could be something uh, as simple as uh, developing our faith, uh, because if we make this subtle but sometimes deadly spiritual mistake, of having faith in our feelings, like, I know everything's all right between me and God because I feel a certain way, we can find ourselves in big-time trouble. So sometimes I believe God will, in a sense, put us through a time where uh, we have to rely upon the promises of His Word and uh, really the track record of faithfulness we've seen Him work out in our lives in the past, and really nothing more. Uh, if we're only Christians because we feel a certain way, well, then what happens when we don't feel that way? Uh, a lot of people will cash in their faith. And so the Lord will take us through those times where we learn to put our faith and our trust in His Word alone. Sometimes God will allow us to uh, go through a time like this, and we really won't know why this side uh, of heaven. Uh, I think about Job and uh, what he experienced. In Job 23, talk about an experience of uh, feeling like God's gone dark or, you know, there's no answer on the other end. Uh, Job said this, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with the arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me with his great power? No, but he would take note of me. Uh, there the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. Boy, talking about a sense of not experiencing the presence of God. It says, when he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns the right hand, I cannot see him. But it doesn't stop there. In Job 23.10, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And he goes on from there. You know, the, the thing that I think we have to look at their essay is this, not just asking what, you know, how am I feeling, or does God go silent on me, or something like this, but the why. 
And uh, Job, uh, who had every experience and every reason to cash in his relationship with God, shoot, Mrs. Job said, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Uh, he had even a rah-rah chorus telling him to cash in his faith. Uh, he held on. Uh, now, that doesn't mean he didn't say some pretty strong things in the book of Job. And guess what? We can say pretty strong things to God anytime we want. He knows what uh, the condition of our heart is. Obviously, we want to come before him with awe and respect. But we also want to realize that he is the high priest, and we can come before him and literally say anything. Uh, God desires honesty in the innermost parts. And sometimes those dark night of the soul, those times where we're not really experiencing uh, the presence of God. Uh, none of us enjoy those sort of things, but I think you hit the nail on the head essay. It is always intended by God to bring be something that brings us closer to Him, and there's nothing that will bring you closer to God than developing your faith and developing your faith in the promises of His Word. All right. Um, I'll keep this question anonymous. Uh, their mother was on some medicine, I assume for pain, that they became addicted to. Uh, they tried to quit cold turkey, but now, and I quote, she's not acting like herself anymore. Uh, he wants to know what to do. When it comes to answering this question biblically to the individual who asked it, it's interesting. We can come at it through a number of different angles. Obviously, it's unhelpful to say we'll uh, pursue other forms of medicine because now we're seeing the consequences of what's already been taken. And by the way, for the record, we're not against medicine. But if uh, we're going to take this approach as far as what role you can play in the life of your loved one, be it your mother, be it your child, it's oddly enough from our own experience that when you're coming off of the effects of these drugs, the good news is our bodies are very good at dealing with them, no matter how potent or strong, but it does take time. And that's the difficult part. When it comes to, again, our own experience, take this for what you will, it would be an opinion. The first emphasis that we'd make to you and to all those involved in your mother's life is to first of all just make sure that even as she's not acting like herself anymore, remind yourself that this isn't a ongoing process. If she's quit cold turkey, then the one thing that was introduced to her life that's making her this way from its absence will eventually work itself out. Whether that takes days, months, years, or hours, that's another question. But the key is to be patient. The key is to be there for her and to help her Absolutely. get through the, uh, I guess, natural faculties of her body processing these things. As far as, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Bible in every question we tried to answer. The book of James chapter 5 just notes this straight up. If anyone's sick, let him pray. Yep. That would be the first thing we'd recommend for you and the first right. thing we'd like to do for you. Would you like to pray for them. Yeah, absolutely. Lord, uh, I know that this person is not alone in terms of struggling with uh, even uh, wanting to be free from the effects and the side effects of uh, all of the prescriptions and all the pills that uh, seemingly are out there and available. Uh, Lord, uh, getting off these sort of things is a huge, huge trial. But I thank you, Lord, that you are with us every step along that way. And Father, uh, the, the simplest path, I think, uh, to wisdom in this set of circumstances is, is pretty key and pretty clear. We're to walk in love with one another. We're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, uh, what that person needs is someone who will stick with them, uh, someone that will be understanding of what is going on. Uh, I pray, Father, for even the people that are coming alongside and being caregivers, 
uh, in this situation, that they would realize that in a lot of ways it's not this person talking. It may very well be the withdrawing from the drugs, that they would uh, have wisdom and compassion. Lord, you say that the wisdom uh, that comes from above is, first of all, pure, then peaceable. Uh, it is gentle. It is willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. And, and Lord, I thank you that by following that pathway of wisdom we see there in James chapter 4, by being there for this person as they attempt to get out from underneath the effects of these drugs they've been on, uh, that's the pathway that they need to take. And, And Father, the other thing that I would pray is that you might guide and direct in this process. Uh, This family to a Christian physician shares their their Christian values, but also can come alongside and help in the process of getting off of some of these medications. Just doing it cold turkey can be so dangerous sometimes. And so, Father, uh, I pray that uh, you would bring alongside even those that can minister and use their skills and their background and their knowledge of the fearfully and wonderfully created body that you've made to be able to facilitate this process. Thank you that we can give this to you. We pray for real victory here in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, understand what we just did wasn't our answer to the problem. It was the first thing we can do as far as dealing with and addressing this problem, and that's what. Notice our prayers to God weren't for, okay, God, uh, remap the cartography of her mind so that she doesn't have increased stress moments when her body's dependent on these chemicals and doesn't find them and has to adjust accordingly. Our prayer was for the individuals that are involved in her life and for her attitude, notice attitude, not biology, her perspective, not her person, to be adjusted to exactly what they need in these circumstances, and then for God to do what he wants on top of that. Our desire was to address, from God's perspective, the issue of the heart, to equip us and enable us with right attitudes. Even a secular person could appreciate that. If, on the other hand, we were to say, oh, you Christians, you don't do anything, you just pray. You're talking to someone who doesn't do what you tell him to. What's the whole point? Well, that's the whole point. We're not telling him what to do. We're asking him what to do. And that's the whole point of communication, not because we know just because we know he's listening, but because we know he's more capable of doing anything than anyone else ever could. The question then is, since whatever we're praying about hasn't been resolved, we're working with the assumption God's allowing this, then saying, okay, not why, but what is going on? What can I do? How can I properly respond in these circumstances? So, as you said earlier, essay, not the individual asked the question, but essay, how can I bring this closer to you? How can I use this to bring me closer to you? Yeah. How can I grow in my relationship with you as a result of even the things I wish weren't happening? It doesn't accomplish anything to, you know, cry out against fate, but it does actually accomplish something to say, okay, how can I use this to give myself a better future, a better fate? I know I'll start at the top where my fate ultimately leads me. That's the reason why we're praying for each other. Yeah, and the other thing that I would say is going through a time like this, like I said, you know, there's all kinds of people out there who can uh, relate to uh, the the trauma of uh, trying to get off of even a useful drug. I, I remember uh, when I had a kidney stone and they gave me a shot of morphine for the pain when they, they brought me in. Uh, you know, the, the nurse who gave me the shot 
uh, said, oh, I've done childbirth and I've had a kidney stone. Believe me, the kidney stone's worse. And I said, that doesn't help me at all. But they gave me a shot of morphine, which is an opioid. And uh, I found out firsthand that I was allergic to opioids. Anything with an opium base in it just really does a number on me. And uh, let me tell you, the, the next four days afterwards, coming down off of that shot of morphine was almost more painful to me than the kidney stone. So I totally get it. Uh, you know, I couldn't get comfortable. My entire body ached. I was sweating. I couldn't think clearly. I totally understand people that uh, go through these things. They don't seem to be themselves. So, you know, when I look back on that, one of the important lessons that I learned was this, compassion. Compassion on people that are going through the same thing. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, we are told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who so wonderfully comforts us who are in any affliction, that we may comfort others with the same comfort whereby we're comforted by God. Uh, there's a lot of comfort in that verse, isn't there? But there's a, a kind of a chain reaction going on. First of all, we have to be in a place where we need comfort. God provides that comfort. And as we receive his comfort, we realize it's not uh, to make us spiritual sponges. It's to make us a conduit, not a cul-de-sac of God's work. And, you know, there's something really, really valuable. It's very difficult, but there's something really valuable about being able to look somebody in the eye and say, man, I know what that's like. I, I, I've been there. When I got my cancer diagnosis, you know, one of the first things went through my mind was how in the world could something like this happen to me? Uh, you know, I go running every day. I eat kale, for goodness sake. Uh, but, you know, why did God take me through all of that? Well, you know what? There's uh, a beautiful, beautiful ministry that I have now, being able to sit down with people who've just gotten a diagnosis of cancer and to be able to say, yeah, I know exactly how that feels. I know how disorienting that can be. But here's some of the lessons that God taught me in the midst of this, and I think these will help you. You know, people will look at you and go, wow, you know, you've actually been there. That really helps. Well, that's sort of the price of admission for being a re recipient of God's comfort and someone who can relay it. You've got to be in a place where you've had to receive that comfort yourself. So uh, one of the things you may be going through in this circumstance is God's taking you and, you know, your relative through this time so that they, in turn, when they get to the other side, can turn around and say, yeah, and this is how I found God to be faithful. All right. Um, yes, time for our contradiction of the day. Uh, this is a statement made that the Bible contradicts itself on the topic, do Christians know how to pray? Uh, if you could turn to the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, apparently. I yeah, yeah, I don't have to turn. Yeah, it's in the same way the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he, who, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is as he intercedes for us according to God's will. I shudder for the life experiences that made you want to commit that one to memory. But the point <laughs> being made is this. It's valuable stuff. There is a statement in there. Christians don't know how to pray as we ought. Does it say we know how to, know how to pray carte blanche? No, but let's at least grant the atheist that. It says in one passage, Christians don't know how to pray. It does put those words in that order. Yeah. As we ought might be an addition of detail, but 
then let's ask the question, where's the contradiction? Well, apparently the Bible is in conflict with itself on this matter, because in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, it says that we do know how to pray. So which is it, Romans 8 or Matthew 6? Do we not know how to pray? as we ought, or we do know how to pray as we ought. Well, the first thing to do, and again, I'm withholding from reading the second passage because A, the atheist won't grant you that liberty, and B, it's actually relevant to the answer. But first, we need to make sure before giving an answer, effectively listening. When someone says the word contradiction, do you know what that means? Or are they, in light of yesterday's rhetoric lesson, equivocating it, misinterpreting it to mean just a difference of words in a particular order? Of course, we need to be aware of that. A contradiction, for those of you, again, who need to know these things, is a violation of the second formal law of logic, that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if the statement is made in Romans chapter 8, which is again iffy, but we'll at least grant the point for the sake of the argument, Romans 8 says Christians don't know how to pray. And Matthew 6 says definitively, in the same sense, Christians do know how to pray especially in the sense that he says the Spirit's the one doing a better job at it. The point being made is what? The Bible can't keep its facts straight. It's not reliable as a source of information because the information is in conflict with each other. And this is one of the best uh, contradictions they've got, by the way. I, uh, I have preferences for some of the more impressive ones, but we'll at least let them speak on their terms. This is one they bothered to put on a blog, so yep. I think they have some confidence in it. But the point being made is this. What does Matthew 6 actually say? Again, Romans chapter 8. Can you go through it one more time, or do you have to look it up? That's no, a joke. No, um, no I know it. Does it say <laughs> that Christians don't know how to pray? No, it doesn't. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness... For we do not know how to pray as we ought to pray. So in the context of dealing with our weaknesses, we don't know how to pray. It doesn't say in all circumstances. No, it just says that uh, because we are weak, limited, fallen, fallible human beings who don't understand all of the implications of our lives, not only what's happening here and now, but what can happen in the future, sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. So the sense is not all times, but sometimes, and it's not an issue of information, it's an issue of perspective. The Holy Spirit's interceding for us in our weaknesses. For, in light of what? We don't know how to pray as we ought. Right. Now what does Matthew chapter 6 say? And again, make sure that I represent their argument fairly. They say it starts in verse 9. I'll do them one better and say, let's start in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So notice, the context is, you don't need to pray. God knows what you're praying, what you pray for before you need it, but or before you ask for it. But he says in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. Does he ever once in those four verses say, you know how to pray? No more than I would be in saying, now that I've taught you calculus, you're now a master of it. Could you teach someone and they not actually know it? Well, everyone here has been to high school and junior high and grade school and kindergarten. 
hopefully, these are sources of information, not a declarative statement that you know how to pray. It's a statement of, in this manner, therefore, pray. Just because, again, Jesus made a statement does not mean that the disciples got it. In fact, Jesus made a lot of statements the disciples didn't get. But notice, the assumption is, in the contradiction, Christians do know how to pray. It says right there in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Well, can I look that up? How dare you? Well, where does it say Christians know how to pray? He said, pray then in this way. Didn't it say they got it? Now note. (laughs) Remember, he had to repeat the same Lord's Prayer uh, two years later as it was recorded in the book of Luke. And they, I'm sure, would say that's a contradiction too, because they don't know what a contradiction is. But notice the problem. Let's at least grant the point. Here's the mindset. Jesus told them how to pray, therefore they do know how to pray. Yet Romans says, you don't know how to pray, no matter how many times you pray. So which is it? Do you know how to pray because Jesus told you to, or do you not know how to pray because the Spirit does it for you? I would have to say, your argument's weak because of two assumptions. One, you're comparing an inference to an inference. This form of A and this form of B aren't in conflict with each other unless I set it up so that the B kind of gets twisted into an A. Well, it reminds me of what you guys were talking about uh, yesterday about equivocation. Yeah. You know, what do you mean by know how to pray? Because that can mean... You have, to, you have to define your terms. Do Christians know how to pray in terms of how Jesus described what a healthy Christian prayer life is like? in what we would call the Lord's Prayer. I think it's probably better to call it the Disciples' Prayer because the Lord gave it to us as his disciples so that we could know how to pray in a, in a way that would be consistent with God's priorities for our life, with praising him, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, asking for his power in our life, uh, thy will be done, God's priorities in our life. Uh, give us this day our daily bread, his provision within our life. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, his purity within our life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, his protection in our life. Now, if I pray about these things and use this as a guideline in prayer, I'm going to have a pretty well-developed prayer life. So in that sense, I know how to pray. But as they say, if you'll pardon the expression, the devil is in the details, isn't it? Yeah, Because I can be praying all these things, I can be praying, thy will be done, and then I can kind of go off on a tangent and go, and Lord, I've got a pretty good idea what your will is in this set of circumstances. And this is really what I would like to see you uh, do in this set of circumstances. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not. But that's why we have a couple of safeguards. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 is this ultimate safeguard in prayer. It is the fact that the Holy Spirit prays for us uh, with groanings that cannot be uttered, and he who who, uh, knows the heart understands what the mind of the Spirit is as he intercedes for us according to the will of God. We can know that no matter how goofy my prayers might be or off base, uh, God is interceding for me through his Holy Spirit. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, also making intercession for me before the Father for him. I can know that no matter what I pray, it goes through the hands of the Holy Spirit. It goes through the hands of Jesus to the Father, and the Father's going to get his will done. That's why Jesus told us to ask in his name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? 
to act in alignment with their character, as if you were that person. I mean, it, like is, 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 it, is it just a, uh, a kind of an open sesame, a spiritual whammy? We put on the end of our prayers, I can now, ask... In Jesus' name, amen. No, I can ask anything I, mean. I want from God, and if I say in Jesus' name, he got to do it. Is that what that is? Well, if it was what that means, if the Christians who purport or who say that's what it means, do so, then the people who actually heard Jesus say, we pray things according to his name, he hears us, or the Apostle John when he said that, they didn't take it that way. In no. fact, they never took it that way. And we yeah. have writings from people living around the lifetimes of these people who also didn't take it that way, and they didn't take it that way either. So. The fact that some Christians can get things wrong, or that, dare I say, the people leveling these contradiction accusations can also get things wrong, doesn't mean that we're wrong, because there is a way to take it wrong. You need to be able to say, what does the text actually say, and is it rational to level this as a logically inconsistent statement when you won't even let the statement stand or fall on its own merit? So when we say, or the question gets asked, do Christians know how to pray? The equivocation fallacy that you guys talked about yesterday would say it would be a very good question at that point to say to the atheist, what do you mean by know how to pray? Can you define your term. Do you know in all circumstances? No. I trust the Holy Spirit to pray for me better than I ever could. Do you know in some circumstances? Generally, if I'm praying, that's the first good step. Yeah. But does that mean no in all senses of the term, or are you uh, getting kind of twisty in your terms? Yeah. There are some things that you and I know how to pray for, yeah. right? There, there's, there's no doubt about it. When we pray for this program that God's Word will go forth and bless people. We know how to pray. Why? Because we know that's God's will. First John chapter 5 and verse 14 says, and this is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have the request which we have made of Him in whatever we ask. Now, what that means is this. If I want to have a 100% track record of answered prayer in my life, the easiest way to do that is to say, okay, what is God's will in this situation? Well, who can know the will of God? Sure, you can know the will of God. The vast majority of God's will for your life and mine has already been revealed in his word, the Bible. And so before I pray, I'm going to know, is there a scriptural principle here that God wants to work out? And, and when I understand what that principle is, maybe it's just working patience in my life, I can come before the Lord, and I can say, Lord, you see this circumstance I'm in, I'd love it if it passed, but Lord, do that work of patience in my life, because I know that's your will. I know it's your will to make me like Jesus. And is God going to answer that prayer? Sure. So I don't know all the, this, the circumstances and consequences, but what a beautiful thing it is to know that the Holy Spirit's going to intercede for us the Jesus is going to intercede for us. The Son is going to intercede with the Father. God's will can guide us. And, you know, if we feel iffy about things, understand, God also reserves the right to say no when we pray things uh, because they're not good for us. So, uh, you know, that contradiction kind of evaporates in that light. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry 
at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.